This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this new episode of our Radar podcast. And I have good news. We're here today in full force. The entire team is here. I'd love to welcome Julie Vance de Vos. Hey, Julie. Hey, Stephen. And we have Pascal Coppens in the group. Hello, Pascal. Hi, Stephen. And I have Laurence van Eelegem. Hello, Laurence. Good morning at this ungodly hour. Oh, it's <laughs> seven in the morning, Laurence. It's okay. <laughs> you will survive. <laughs> and then we have Peter Hinsen. Hey, Peter. Good to be here. Good morning, everyone. We have a full ag agenda with loads of interesting topics. And I just want to kick off with um, an opportunity I had last week. I was co-moderating the UBA Trends Day in Belgium, which has become in the last few years like the marketing flagship event that we have. There were more than 1,400 people. There were seven top international speakers there. So it was, uh, it was really a fantastic event. Um, and I had the opportunity to interview Scott Galloway. Uh, the guru professor from New York that is like a serial entrepreneur that has amazing podcasts, who has been in the board of directors of multiple companies, and above all, is super, super sharp with his analysis of what is happening in the business world. And I asked him as an opening question, what did you find the most interesting, the most important event that happened in the business world in 2023 until now? And I was a little bit surprised by his answer. So I would love to ask the question to you guys. What do you think Scott Galloway thought was the most important business event of 2023? Julie? I was going to say the layoffs, but that's not really an event, like the massive layoffs in tech. But mm -hmm. Okay, okay, that's a very good first guess. Pascal, what do you think? Because I look at the US-China tensions, of course, I would assume something around uh, maybe TikTok or ChatGPT, but uh, these are the two topics where... I think there's a lot of talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Lorenz, what do you think? Well, I would also have said generative AI, but as you said, we were going to be surprised. So I'm guessing he said something else. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Peter, what do you think? Um, the um, collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the rescue of First Republic by JP Morgan? No, no. It was very surprising because I asked the question a little bit different. I started to talk about generative AI and I said I was super surprised by the fact that Microsoft, you know, is now like the leading company, whereas 10 years ago, we thought it was a dinosaur that was about to die. So I started like this, and then he talked a little bit about AI, and he called it the renaissance of Microsoft. So he, he of course, thought that was really interesting. But for him, the most interesting fact, the most important that have, will have the biggest influence in the next 12 months is, and Julie, you were very close to the answer that he gave, was the mass layoffs at Twitter the decision of Elon Musk to fire 80% of the Twitter staff. So now 80% is gone. They have 20% left. And he says the entire world is looking at that, especially the guys in Silicon Valley are looking at that and are saying, okay, Twitter is still live. Twitter has still activity. They had any flaws. They're still business. They're still innovating. And he is doing that with 20% of the staff So what were the other 80% of those people doing day in, day out, if you don't feel the difference in the market as a user? 
And he says in his network now that he feels that every major company in Silicon Valley is thinking about, didn't we overhire? And can't we just lay off, not a little bit like Amazon and Facebook did. He thought those were small layoffs. I mean, we're talking about 25,000 people at Amazon, but we don't mention that they hired more than a million in the last three years. So relatively speaking, that's a small correction. He says, what if some of those companies do a major correction like Twitter has done. This could change the world completely. And he says, of course, they're not going to do it in the brutal way like Elon Musk did. The way that he did it was, was awful. But what if they use the philosophy, maybe a little bit more hidden in the beginning, maybe a little bit more careful, but this could change the way that tech companies are, are organized completely. That was his opening statement. So I thought that was quite surprising. But if you think about it, it's something that we don't talk about anymore because it's like old news. But if he is right, this could have a major, major impact in the way that talent is hired and the need for talent, especially now with the arrival of AI. Uh, and of course, I asked him about if we are overhyping AI at this moment because it's all over the place. Is, are we exaggerating? And his answer again was really fun because he said, you know what? He said in the last five years, we had hypes about Internet of Things, about virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, sensors here, sensors there. And he said, those are all like bullshit technologies. They are completely useless. It's just gimmick technologies that will not change the world at all. It's just something that is invented by technology people to create a new market, but the world doesn't need it. So he was 100% firm in his own Scott Galloway style. But he said the one major thing, of course, is AI that is yeah, fundamentally changing the way that people buy things, the way that people organize things is fundamentally changing the way how the productivity in the world will change. So he was, for the first time in a long time, he said, a tech optimist. He's usually a tech pessimist. Uh, it's since the arrival of the iPhone that he became so positive about the new technology. So we're going to talk about AI later in the show, but he is on that positive tech wave there as well, just like a lot of other people. He's actually more positive than a lot of other people. He sees the downsides, but he is like, we're talking so much about these downsides that yeah, we're, we're forgetting the opportunities here. He also thought that I asked him about the letter, you know, the famous letter, the six month pause letter that so many people signed. He, he thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever for multiple reasons. You know, Elon Musk signed it. And the day after that, he started his own AI company. But he says, you know, other countries in the world, more specifically, China, Iran, Russia, they will not pause their AI. So it would be like the dumbest thing in Western history to pause the evolution of AI. And we need to, you know, add more energy and talent to it than, than focus on the downsides. So that was an interesting debate as well. And then I asked him about our part of the world. I said, you know, this is a conference in Belgium, in Europe. We're a little bit worried that all the big AI investments are happening east and west of us, and we're not playing this game along. There's not enough money going to it, so we're, we're losing this battle. Peter has written a column about that a few weeks ago, and he acknowledged that. And in just a few sentences, he really showed us the pain points in the European system. He says, it's very simple. If you start a business in, in the U.S., you have the misery, you have the problems, you have all the shit that comes along with it, you have the risk, you have the issues with government, you know, all the shitty things about starting a company and starting a startup are more or less the same in Europe as in the US. He says, you guys think it's easier for us and that your government is making it harder on you, but you know, believe me, it's also shitty to start a company in the US. 
the big difference is that you guys have the shitty part, but you don't have the major upside that we have in the U.S. The benefits of having a successful company in the United States are much larger than having a successful company in Europe. That's where your government is punishing you. That's why they are demotivating you. And the fact that you don't have that major upside that it can make you a billionaire in just a few years' time is, yeah, demotivating people to start a business here. And as long as you don't change that, you can do whatever you want, but then people will come to the U.S. to start their business there because they want to, you know, they can live with the downsides if they can have the carrot in front of that major upside. And we don't have that. And it's basically the role for Europe that the the role that he sees is basically the one that we always talk about, regulation. And we sometimes joke about it, but he was like, this could be an important role because in the world of AI, he really hopes that we're going to have regulation really soon so that we can, you know, lower the amount of time that we have to invest in in talking about the negative aspects of AI, we need good regulation. And he had the feeling that Europe's teeth are getting stronger and that we are learning from the past and that Europe could become a major player there in regulating it. It didn't really make me excited to hear that that was our role, uh, but it was very kind of him that he at least gave us a role in the whole process. But he was not positive that we will ever play a role again in a major technology um, revolution because of the analysis that I just made. Are you sure that when he talks about that Europe can become, you know, the the, the regulator, he was not being overly sarcastic? (laughs) Did you you pick up on that? No, I don't think so. I think he was really, he was really serious and he's... uh, he was, he was hoping that we would play our role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Peter believes you, Stephen. That's very clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could send you the entire interview, Peter, so you can be the judge That's of it idea. yourself. That's a good idea. Thank I'll certainly listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> he was also really very, very negative about TikTok. And he said, you know, let's not have a discussion about data and privacy. That's, I mean, that's the same discussion that we have about Google and, and Facebook. But there's a major difference between Google and Facebook on the one side and TikTok on the other side. He says, you know, Google and Facebook are just companies that are so madly in love with the money that they're making stupid decisions. It's clear that Google has been led in a very bad way in the past few years. If you look at the Microsoft Renaissance, and that's because they fell in love with the money. Same for Facebook. So, you know, you can complain about the fact that they're not running their companies as they should and not in a customer-centric way. But the big difference with TikTok is that it is supported by the Chinese government. And he says it's probably the smartest thing they've ever done. It's a propaganda tool. It's a Trojan horse where they have the power to manipulate very large groups of Western population where they are, uh, let's say, addicted to a certain algorithm. And if you control what the algorithm is doing, you can massively let people think in a certain direction. It's like what we had with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, which was like a major incident in the Western world. This is a tool that is just like Cambridge Analytica, but then every single day of the year. So he feels we need to end that. We need to either kill the whole thing or sell it to an American company so that they can enter uh, Western algorithms in there. So he was he was really firm. I don't think he would be your friend, Pascal. No, I don't think we would agree <laughs> on that point. Uh, I think uh, that we would have a, an, an hour of discussion back and forth on, on how I think uh, why TikTok actually became so addictive. So let's and, sponsor uh, that. I'd, I'd love to see yeah, a, a Coppers yeah. versus Galloway match. Let's do this. Uh, we, we yeah. should, that's that's one of our ambitions so that we should yeah. have. No, I wouldn't mind. 
No, but it's 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 the general view of of most people in the U.S. these days, and so it it is very challenging these days to counter that. Well, let's not go into that topic, otherwise we're going to talk about now about TikTok <laughs> and, and and the Communist Party of China. But uh, talking about the Communist Party of China, um, I think there's other things that I would like to share, which is um, the question whether China is back. But Pascal, can I just ask you a question about the TikTok? Go, Because go ahead, go ahead. I know you have the voices that we hear in the U.S. All, everyone is very conscious and very negative about it. You are defending it uh, with your whole heart and body. Uh, but isn't there a chance that they are right? Isn't there, like, even in your mind, a small chance that they are right? That TikTok could be a propaganda tool of the Chinese government? I think any technology company that is linked to a certain government, and so is Google and Microsoft and Apple in a way, uh, could be used as a propaganda tool for that government. The question is, uh, is that realistic? And what is the situation at TikTok right now? And so the situation at TikTok right now is that it's more of an American company than Google is, if you look at their investors, uh, if you look at where the data is, if you look at where uh, the security is, is enforced. In, in so I, I don't think... It's as simple as that. But you're right. I mean, if a government gets their hands and get control over any technology company that has impact in, the, in any part of the world, this can be used in their favor. And so, yeah, in a way, he is right. But that's the trillion-dollar question. The real issue, if you just want to go into that team anyhow, the real issue with China is that there's no company in China that is not directly or indirectly linked to the Chinese government. And whether even they, they don't want to be, I mean, somehow, if they wanted to grow over time, they've always had some connection. It's, it's kind of like, I mean, Peter in Belfius, for example, is also linked to the Belgian government. And so does that mean that if the Belgian government does something wrong, that suddenly they're all, we're all spies? I mean, I think that's, that's where we need to be careful about. Every company is somehow linked to the government. And so is Microsoft, so is Google. The only question is, what do they do with that? And so the management of TikTok is, uh, in my view, completely independent these days. And that is what Americans don't believe. And because they don't believe it, uh, it's just a narrative. You're you're right, or and I'm, I'm wrong. And so this is an endless discussion on who will do what. <laughs> I, I could go on and on, but I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. But. Maybe just a comment on that is I did some work for a big private equity firm uh, this week. And this is a company that is based in Europe, is based in the US and based in China. And I think what I've noticed is that companies who are in China and who understand how China works, even if they are US companies like this private equity firm is, they have a more nuanced view on this. Whereas I think if you don't understand how that relationship works between, say, a private company and the government in China, if you don't have any exposure to that, it seems very alien. So I think there's an enormous amount of companies, individuals out there who just don't understand how that relationship works and therefore probably turn that into fear or propaganda. I think you're 100% right. And, and that's the issue. And of course, Because you don't know the relationship, and it is a, a strong relationship in a way, because it, it goes back to thousands of years of relationship between the administration and the citizens, it's really hard to explain. But but I do believe that, um, that there's much more uh, talk about TikTok than there is risk about TikTok. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be careful. Uh, but we should also look at, I mean, why is 
Google banned in China? Why is Facebook banned in China? And this is the same thing. I mean, we should, in a way, they are they don't want to abide to the Chinese laws. And, and the problem is the laws in the US are just so open that whether you're TikTok or any company in the world, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And I think that's the issue as well. And this goes back to the regulation of AI. We're going to get into that same discussion when it comes to AI. And it's no coincidence that it's not just Europe that is regulating AI. China is hugely uh, spending time on regulating AI and specifically the algorithms and what's possible because they feel the same worry if it's unregulated. This is going to go into a different black hole and, and that things could happen. And so, yeah, I think uh, it's not just Europe that could play the role of, of regulation. China's doing the same thing. I interrupted you and the, the sentence you said is, China is back. Can you continue? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Because uh, TikTok is a long story. But if you look at the economy, I think what's important in the future, uh, even for, I mean, technology and innovation, is to look who's driving the economies of the future. And it's clear that China, the last three years, has been closed off and there's been a lot of question marks. Is this going to be about politics and this economy actually going to never get back on track? And, and what does that mean for the future? The good news, and that's what I wanted to share, is that since a couple of months, so this first quarter, all the numbers in China are up, which means that business people are back trying to do business with China. And everybody's feeling like in five or 10 years from now, China will probably become the biggest economy in the world. And if we take that into account, of course, that is a very different prediction or, or expectation that we have for the future, having a country like China being the number one in the world. I'm going to bore you with a few numbers, but I know you like numbers. So, <laughs> uh, The growth of China in 2022 was 3%. And um, it was predicted 5.5% last year, but we all know with the, the lockdowns and, and what was closed closed up of China, I mean, it's they could never have reached that. So they reached 3%, but this quarter was important because it's the first quarter that China was actually open. And all the numbers are pretty much up. I mean, the GDP grew with 4.5%, trade with 4.8%, retail with 5.8%. I mean, everything about 5 uh, fixed asset investment, service output. I mean, whatever number you take, it's about 5% growth. And so that is great because it looks like everything's back. Now, there's a few things that are, are not so positive, and that is uh, the production numbers or PMI numbers, which means that the expectation to produce products for the world is low, meaning that they expect a recession in the West, America and probably, uh, I mean, a very slow growth in uh, in Europe. And so that is prediction for the future. And the biggest issue China has right now, and if I would look at it, is youth unemployment. It goes back to the issue of talent. I mean, uh, the, there's a lot of young people graduating from university, but they don't find a job because technology companies are not hiring them anymore. I mean, there's 12 million graduates every year coming out of China. But the Alibabas and Tencents, just like Twitter and others, are not hiring. And that's a huge issue because unemployment for young people is not good for the Chinese economy because they drive the growth. And also, these are the people that have to make children for the demographics for China in the future. So, And Pascal, is it primarily the higher educated who are finding it more difficult to find a job? It's overall. Uh, it's overall. It's, yeah. th there's no difference, but, but it is also the higher educated. And that's the most uh, scary part of it. So... They graduate with an engineering degree in, in physics and they can't find a job. And, and, wow. that's, and that is simply because these companies want experienced people. So there's a war of talent. And so they'd rather hire somebody from even another country to make sure they have the experience rather than the Chinese that they need to train. 
The other problem with training Chinese is that uh, they love to get trained and then two years later they're with your competitor because they can get more money. And so, Do you think that these people not getting a job, these young people, could result in them going abroad and finding jobs there? Um, well, no. What's happening is they are going abroad and in China to continue studying. Uh, so they, their parents, which they're usually single child, uh, and so that means that they believe that, yeah, these parents believe this child should get everything possible for their future. And so if they can't find a job, they send them to other countries to study and in the hope to get back with more experience or at least uh, with more insights of, of certain things. So, yes, that is possible. But I don't see a flooding of Chinese coming to work here yet. But it could be a huge opportunity for Europe because they're usually quite good students and quite capable. And so we should actually hire all the unemployed from China. I think that's, that's a great strategy for Europe. But anyway, <laughs> what's also been uh, been up um, or, or actually down, but down is a good thing in this case, is inflation. It's 0.7%. Wouldn't we love that in Europe? 0.7%. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah that's, so that's amazing. 0.7% is the inflation of March in, in, in China. How much was the inflation last year, Pascal? It was around two, oh, okay. between two and three. I need to look at the number exactly, but it was uh, it was still low. Yeah. But now 0.7 is really like uh, <laughs> real down there. There's no inflation in China whatsoever. And property prices have stabilized as well. So everything looks good. The result of it is that economists in the US, JP Morgan, the Bank of America, all these economists have um, forecasted that China will probably grow at 6 to 6.5% this year. So 1% higher than they forecasted three months ago. And that means that's more than a full percent higher than what the Chinese government themselves have put as a target or a goal for 2023. Okay. So if China grows at 6.6%, 6.5%, I mean, what that means is that the whole world will go back to China to do business because it's it's one of the growth engines uh, for the future. And so, yeah, this, this is back. But what's the most interesting, and that's a little bit the story I, I wanted to talk about, is travel. Every year there's uh, the May... First, Labor Day travel, uh, and that's like a three-day travel. And I don't know if you know the system in China, but you, you get three days holiday, and then they add two days to that. You get that for free, but then you have to work two Sundays, one before <laughs> and one after. Uh, so they, they just make up for that in a weekend. The, so you can have a full five-day holiday plus the weekend, so that's seven days. So two weekends and a full day. So ultimately, you have nine days of holiday. Uh, but you only get uh, get paid for three. The others you have to work on the weekends. And so what that means is that people were traveling again, normally. And so these numbers were completely off the charts. I mean, this was crazy. And, and that really shows that Chinese are consuming again, they're shopping again. And uh, just to give you a, a number, there's 274 million people that traveled inside China in the first week of May, 274 million people. That's, that's as many as all the Americans <laughs> that actually traveled in the country. Uh, rail and, and air travel was up with 500% compared to last year. Of course, last year was uh, COVID lockdowns in Shanghai at this point. So people were not allowed to travel in many places. It's a 700% increase with last year uh, in total and 20% more, and that's interesting, 20% more than 2019. So people have traveled more than before the pandemic in this May. So, so everything's off the charts. But the, the story I want to end with, and this is a story, it's, it's about a city 
in China called Zibo. Have you heard about this? No, 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 never heard about. Oh, come on, the whole world knows about Zibo, no? I mean, this is uh, one of the most important cities in China. No, it's not. It's actually a, a smaller city, a tier three city in Shandong, and Shandong is the province between Shanghai and Beijing in the middle. A uh, big province. They're also known as very strong drinkers. So um, if you ever do business with the government of Shandong, your liver will be affected, I can tell you. I know from experience. But the Zopo is a city where you don't have a, an airport, so you have to go there by train or bus. And it's not very well known. But the interesting thing is that in 2022, last year, so in autumn, there was the lockdowns. And so 12,000 people, university students, were sent to the quarantine centers in Zerbo. And of course, there were students from Shandong University and big universities, and they were scared like hell. I mean, we're going to end up in the middle of nowhere. This is going to be terrible. How are we going to survive? And so basically, they were very scared. They arrived there. And this is a story for you, Stephen, because it's about customer centricity. Uh, and so this is interesting because the government treated them like kings. <laughs> and so they arrived there. And the, the rooms were really clean. There were new rooms. I mean, they got everything possible. They almost got butler service uh, when they arrived there. I mean, 12,000 university students, they got great food. I mean, everything was, was, was incredible. And, and this was an impression that, that really left, uh, left a mark for them in, in a good way. And they, they really thought, I mean, what just happened to us? And when they left, uh, the government invited them for a barbecue meal. Because the most famous thing about Zerbo is actually that they have uh, the most famous barbecue sticks in China. And this is a, a cuisine which the whole China knows. I've been uh, eating barbecue in Shanghai. It's usually when you're, you're hungry around two or three o'clock at midnight. I mean, after midnight, uh, that's the only thing you can find on the streets is these barbecue uh, guys that are making barbecue uh, sticks with, with, with meat and so on and, and, and vegetables. It's really nice to eat. It all comes from Zerbo. And so this is famous for it. And so what happened is that these uh, university students, they were so amazed and so impressed with, with something they didn't expect that they started putting this on social media, their experience. And um, they said to the government, yeah, we'll come back at the next holiday to visit with, with our family and our friends and, and whatever. And so influencers picked up on this. And so many influencers in China, they went to Zerbo and they started streaming, live streaming about the life in Zerbo and how people were friendly and how it was cheap and, and it was, as was really a unique experience and so on. The result of it is that in the May holiday, this became such a viral hit that the whole China wanted to travel to Zerbo. You have to imagine. And so the government actually doubled down on that. And the government put in barbecue trains uh, from Shanghai, Beijing, and all the big cities, barbecue buses. <laughs> and so when you, when you board a bus or a train in Shanghai to go to Zebo, they actually got volunteers in Shanghai telling you where the best barbecues are. They should even give a map of barbecue uh, shop vendors and so on. And, and so everything is about barbecue, but it's a whole experience you have. And if you're a student because they love students, you get free access to every kind of attraction in Zerbo. And, and so, I mean, they really went out of the way. I mean, but the other issue is when there's so many people coming to a, a city, what happens? Prices go up. So hotels become more expensive. Taxis don't want to use the meter. Prices of restaurants go up. And so the, this is where the government stepped in. And the government of Zerbo forced all the hotels not to raise the price. Also for the taxis, if they didn't use the meter, they would lose their license. 
And then everybody who was a restaurant could not uh, raise the prices during this May holiday. <laughs> the travel increased with more than 2,000%. I mean, this is the most well-known travel city in the world these days, especially from Chinese point of view. So just to give you an idea about how you can actually uh, make sure that your city suddenly gets set on the map by just being more customer friendly and, and enforcing certain rules so that there's a, there's a fair way of, of doing things. Wow. What do you think about it? That's an amazing <laughs> story. I, haven't, I, I didn't hear about this. So thanks for sharing it. And it's, it's again, the power of influencers as well. Huh? It's something that you always see coming back in China, how, how much they share and how big the influence of the influencers actually is. I think it's, it's higher than in Western markets is, is my feeling sometimes. So let's all go to Zibo next, next time we are in China. Next trip, we go to Zibo and we're going to have a fantastic barbecue there. Yep. <laughs> at three o'clock at night. <laughs> you know that's possible. <laughs> Let's move back to the Western world. And uh, Peter, you want to share something about Apple. Uh, Apple Card launched a saving account with an interest rate of 4.15%. Um, is that a crazy thing? Is this uh, a revolution or is this just an average innovation of, of Apple? What is your assessment on this? Well, I, I think it's a big thing because, uh, as you know, I follow the financial sectors or financial services really, really closely. And as you know, I have no idea, Pascal, what the typical interest rate that you have in China. If you have a, you know, a savings account in China, what's, what's the interest rate that you can get in a Chinese bank? Uh, it's not that high, actually. It used to be like 5-6%, but it's, it's going to 3% these days. And that is also why China's making lots of money. I mean, they don't they save a lot, but then they don't give a lot back. And so that keeps that they keep the money in the bank. But yeah, as, as you know, with the current inflation, uh, people are looking very, very closely at, at how to optimize you know, the cash that they have or the savings that they have. And today it's very clear what you get from a bank in a typical Western bank, there is no way that that compensates for inflation. So, you know, it, it's very clear that if you keep your money in, in a deposit, that is probably losing money. That's the way it is. So it was really surprising uh, just recently that Apple uh, introduced a whopping 4.15% interest on their savings account. And of course, Apple has been in financial services for quite a while, but I love the approach that Apple takes. It's very, very slow but very, very thorough. I mean, you can clearly see that it's marching, marching, marching. And yeah, there is an absolute force there. So as you know, Apple Cart, which is only available in the US, now has about 7 million customers. So 7 million customers actually use Apple Cart, uh, which you know they link to their iPhone that they can use to power their Apple Pay. Um, this is something which was done in collaboration with Goldman Sachs. And when they announced this back in 2019, the banking industry actually was a little frightened because, you know, at that moment, um, Apple was shopping around the whole deal of the Apple Card to a lot of other uh, banks. Citi, for example, uh, Wells, um, you know, JP Morgan. But eventually Goldman Sachs says, yes, we want to be the partner for Apple to be able to power the Apple Card. And the other bank said, are you nuts? Because the Apple Card, for example, has no fees. I mean, imagine that you can use the Apple Card, no fees. It is actually helping you 
to make sure that you as a consumer are actually minimizing your debt. Uh, so it's actually figuring out ways to help you to actually minimize the type of exposure that you have. And of course, that's how banks make money. So the other bank said to Goldman Sachs, you must be out of your mind because you agreed to the deal because you want to be in the shining light of Apple, but you're actually doing something which is very, very dangerous. Anyway, we now have 7 million customers. Is that a lot? Not really. They've only been doing in the US. But the US is, of course, a market where financial services is, you know, I think, always extremely innovative. And what happened is that um, just end of last year, Apple announced that we're getting into the buy now, pay later game as well. And as you know, this is something which is huge. In Europe, we have players like Klarna, for example, which have become you know, really, really big mechanisms in the financial space to help people to actually figure out, you know, to spread their you know, payments over a longer time. When Apple announced that end of last year, they said, yes, we're going to do buy now, pay later as well. But actually, we don't need Goldman Sachs anymore. We're going to do that with our own balance sheet. Apple has such an incredibly strong balance sheet that they actually said, we don't need a bank anymore to do these types of financial services deals. And now, of course, they introduced the uh, capability of having that savings. I mean, 4.15% uh, annual percentage yield is really a lot. I mean, that is a big, big, big upgrade to what you can get with a commercial bank. And I think this is something where... In the financial sector, everybody is watching that because you can see them very, very slowly progressing. And it always reminds me of that, that wonderful statement that Bill Gates you know, said, I don't know, 25 years ago, banking is necessary, but banks are not. You, you probably remember that. It's one of the famous Bill Gates statements. And for me, Apple is the great example of that. He's not saying you know, that we don't need financial systems, we don't need banking, we need banking. But to actually see more and more of that activity being transferred to a player like Apple, I think is absolutely fascinating. And what you see with Apple is when they need a bank, they're gonna partner, but then they're gonna play them out against each other. But you see a progress of Apple moving into financial services that is absolutely fascinating. On top of that, we now have this huge turmoil in the financial services sector, and the U.S. banking sector is, of course, something that is, I mean, this is, this is Hollywood. I mean, this is, I mean, every day you can eat popcorn and see what is happening in the banking sector in the U.S. But, you know, we had Silicon Valley Bank that collapsed, then we had Signature Bank that collapsed, then we had First Republic Bank, which, you know, was a pretty big bank with a lot of rich clientele that was rescued overnight and actually was absorbed by JP Morgan. JP Morgan, which is already the biggest bank in the US and normally could never acquire another bank because that would be too much concentration. But the US government said, we cannot have First Republic fail, so JP Morgan, you're allowed to buy this. Now we have you know, Pacific West, PacWest, which is, you know, the moment we're recording this, they just lost 50% of their market value you know, overnight. There is something fundamentally happening, and it's really consumers who are terrified that the money they leave on a bank is going to become worthless or actually degrade, and they're looking at opportunities, and you can clearly see that the players like Apple are moving in and really taking advantage of that. And Peter, the fact that they go for a 4.5 team, is that a pure acquisition strategy that they make it so attractive so people will come in? Or is there another reason why they chose for this approach? 
Nobody knows. I mean, let's be honest. Nobody knows what the strategy of Apple is. Maybe it's because uh, they're making most of their money in China that is still growing at 6.5%. <laughs> but I, I think, honestly, there is a long-term play that Apple does to become more relevant for consumers in their lives every single day. And I think if you see the success of Apple Pay, I mean, there were a lot of Western banks or a lot of European banks who tried to hold off Apple Pay as long as possible. And I think it was a sound strategy because you can clearly see the moment that people get into this, they see the convenience. You can clearly see that Apple takes over so much of that you know, interface towards the financial system. And Apple Pay is extremely user-friendly to actually use. So I think it is a long play that Apple has, but it was an absolute surprise move uh, in a world that is already extremely volatile uh, in, in the Western world today. And is that your prediction then by 2030, for instance, that they would have a real offer in the world of financial services? Or is there a limit to the possibilities if you're not a bank, but a company like Apple? Yeah, there is. But th then again, I mean, we've seen this over and over again. Um, you know, th there is a lot of technological innovation that happens where you don't need to have all the downsides, but you can get a lot of the upsides. It's the classic platform play. Uber doesn't need to you know, own the cars, but it can actually offer the service. And Apple is, I think, absolutely not interested to become a bank. You don't want to become a bank because you're so incredibly regulated. I mean, there is so much pressure on the financial services system. So I think Apple is going to do everything to optimize what they have and skirt around the necessity to actually get into the regulated field. And so far, they've been doing that brilliantly, very slowly, but absolutely with an amazing force and with an extremely, extremely long-term strategy. Julie, you picked out, you told it to me, it was your favorite chart of the month. This is a podcast, so we cannot show <laughs> well, the sure. chart. So I was a little bit surprised that this was a topic. So can you explain us what you want to share with our audience, please? Absolutely. And we'll also share the chart in the show notes, of course, of course. so that you can look it up. But um, I think another thing or company that uh, that grew uh, plus 6% is, uh, is Walmart, actually. It's not what the chart is about. But we've been looking closely at Phoenix companies and unicorn companies in the last decade, I think. And we talked a lot the last couple of months about Microsoft and Google because fascinating how Microsoft is a stellar Phoenix these days. But we haven't been talking much about Amazon versus Walmart. I mean, these were the, the titans close to each other where you had, I mean, everybody was searching on Amazon when they did their online shopping. And then you had this chart this month, which actually comparing Q1 last year and Q1 this year in online shopping. Um, so where do U.S. consumers start their online shopping? And I mean, the majority still starts that at Amazon, obviously, uh, a whopping 63%, which is, I mean, I think even down than a couple of years ago. But Amazon is losing percentages. It's minus 7%. And then who's winning? It's Walmart.com. They were up plus 6%. And I think that's fascinating to see how they are really pursuing that uh, omni-channel strategy and apparently without the big news about it and the charts. And they are doing pretty well. Uh, I don't think they hired millions of people the last couple of months. They have enough of it. I, I hope they won't fire 80% of the people at Walmart either. They will need that. But uh, apparently what they are doing in their omni-channel strategy is paying off and Amazon is getting hurt by it. So I think you really should check what Walmart is doing as well, and, and to the former point, I think, Peter, they're also 
a little bit active in the financial services industry. So that might be also another company that we see in banking without being a bank. So um, yeah, one to watch. Yeah, and close to Google, if you look at the stats, Google today still is the second most important place where people start a, a product search, but Walmart is catching up. So it's interesting to see. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing. We're going to move to our monthly AI topic. Uh, there's still a lot of evolutions in the world of AI. There are a lot of questions, a lot of evolutions. So we want to tackle this in this episode of Radar. Laurence, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you uh, shared something with me about AI and data, where Sam Altman said he believes the era of giant AI models like ChatGPT is coming to an end. So we have the first one who's already predicting the end of the hype. So what, what's going on here? Yes, well, to be clear, he's not saying um, that generative AI is coming to an end, but the models beneath, these large language models beneath generative okay. AI. So he thinks that the future progress in AI will really require new ideas and it will not be about making the models bigger. He also thinks that the parameter count is really a false measurement of the quality of a model. And just to give you an idea how... LLMs have been growing in size. Well, first of all, we had GPT-2 in 2019, which had a whopping 1.5 billion parameters. Then GPT-3 2020 really had a lot more, which were 175 billion parameters. The amount of data used for GPT-4 has been undisclosed until now, but many sources say that it was likely trained using trillions of words of text. So they really have been growing exponentially, these large language models. So why did Sam Altman say that he thinks that these huge models will be coming to an end? Well, first of all, he said that scaling up model size comes with diminishing returns. So the bigger a model becomes, the less the returns are in proportion to that. Obviously, there are also cost constraints because uh, there's a limit to how many data centers a company can build and how quickly it can build these. And Obviously, it's also really damned expensive. Building ChatGPT, to give an example, costs over $100 million. And so it is perhaps not surprising that OpenAI is not currently developing GPT-5 and that it does not plan to do so for some time. And so I think this was really interesting news. But most of all, I'm wondering if this is not just more than just a technical or a budgetary story. Because while we saw ChatGPT a lot in the news, with many stories about privacy, about copyrights, how it is using and treating data. And just to give some examples, well, copyright first. A few weeks ago, Getty Images said that they would be suing Stability AI, who has Stable Diffusion, because they said that it has trained Stable Diffusion with 12 million of its images. It's really not happy about that. We had three artists also suing Stability AI, but also Midjourney and also DeviantArt. You had this website called Have I Been Trained, which allows artists to now opt out of the training data sets um, of Stable Diffusion version number three. Perhaps the most striking one is that Universal Music was really not amused when the AI song Hard On My Sleeve, which used voices of Drake and The Weeknd, appeared and they really asked streaming services like Spotify and like Apple Music to stop AI companies from accessing their artists' songs to train their machines. 
And just as a little side note, if you go to the website aihits.co, you will find the entire list of the most popular AI songs of the moment. And you will see, unless it has changed since yesterday, but that the top five of all these hits are all Drake songs or collaborations. So you would see why that would worry universal music. And in some ways, this is really the Pirate Bay all over again. Now, that's one spectrum. On the other hand, we had something really surprising reaction from Grimes, who is a music artist and who we know as the ex of Elon Musk, with whom he has two babies with really unpronounceable names. So I won't even try that. But she said that anyone can use her voice for AI-generated songs as long as they give her 50% of the profit. And she has even launched an open source software with a very pronounceable name called ElfTech, which is solely dedicated to replicating her voice. So that's all the things about copyright. And we also saw concerns about privacy. Obviously, the most obvious example is Italy, which banned ChatGPT over privacy concerns, though it is now back because OpenAI made some changes. But we have still other countries like Germany and Ireland and Canada, Spain, who are still suspicious. So this is definitely not the end of the story. But it's not just governments, it's also companies, because Samsung said it does not want employees to use AI tools like ChatGPT over security concerns. Then the third thing that I saw is that you really have these parties that have been starting to ask for money. Like um, we have Twitter, we had Reddit, we had Stack Overflow, and they all want to charge for access to their APIs because they want AI companies to pay up for training on their data. And so when it comes to data and generative AI systems, there are basically two reactions. The one is, well, no, you cannot use our data um, because of privacy, because of security, because of copyrights. And that's definitely bad news for large language models that are really thirsty for a lot of data. And then the other one is, yes, you can use our data if you pay us, which is also bad news because these models are really expensive on their own. And so imagine what would happen if they need to pay for their data. And maybe perhaps one last thing here is it also got me thinking about Web3, which is now in a slump, frankly, and it's only a promise. But if it pans out and if people will no longer be sharing their data and keep it in a cryptocurrency wallet or in a personal data vault, this could also be a problem for LLMs and their thirst for more data. So I think... If you think about that, that it's no wonder and it's actually pretty logical that people like Sam Altman are looking for ways to make the model better uh, without having to use more data. But I also believe that it's not just about budget and, and diminishing returns and things like that. It's really access to data is becoming a lot more difficult. And I think that that's a, a really important issue as well. Yeah. And it's even uh, geopolitically, because uh, data now between countries is also getting more difficult to cross the border. I mean, with China, it's, it's very obvious. I mean, there it's not China that first banned Ch ChatGPT, it's uh, OpenAI that banned China. <laughs> so it wasn't available in China. And so I think there's uh, more and more of that uh, coming up, that uh, data is becoming uh, more in silos again just because everybody wants to protect the data. And for ChatGPT or for, I mean, all these models, this will indeed become challenging. One of the interesting things about China is that one of the reasons that they banned ChatGPT is because they thought too much of the information from the West was biased and did not have the Chinese uh, view or lens, as I often call it, uh, on there. And so you're going to have it both ways in both directions. So yes, something to worry about.
Yeah, and maybe if I could add on to that, I find it really fascinating and that on which data are the large language models trained? And of course, now one of the weird things is with more and more data that is being generated by these tools, is that going to be fed back into the models? So this is like mad cow's disease, but for data, right? You remember mad cow's disease. I mean, it was cows eating cows and that just, you know, it was not a good idea. But now you have the same thing because you're going to have large language models feeding onto data that was generated by large language models and you're going to have contaminated data, which I think is a really interesting discussion to have. And I don't know if you know this story, but it's one of my favorite stories. So if you want to have steel that is uncontaminated by nuclear radiation, it's almost impossible to find. So if you want, for example, to build a satellite that makes really, really accurate, very precise measurements, but you don't want that steel that you're going to use or the metal you're going to use is contaminated by nuclear radiation, you have to actually find metal that is untouched by all the nuclear explosions that we started having after 1945. And the only way to find that is to go into the depths of the ocean to find old warships, steel warships that have been sunk before 1945. And this is now actually a business where if you need pure, uncontaminated, non-nuclear metal, you actually have people digging up old German warships, you know, because that has not been touched because it's been kilometers under the seawater. And I find it fascinating. And you're going to have exactly the same thing in data. Where do you find uncontaminated data? But I think it is something which, you know, is generating so much discussion. And what I find really fascinating is that it polarizes the whole audience into believers and non-believers. I don't know if you guys see this when you talk to companies, but this week alone, I did a keynote for one of the largest law firms in the world. And this was the top management, top leaderships of the law firm around the table. And I was talking about what large language models were going to do to the legal profession. And the younger lawyers, the younger partners, you could see them just thinking, shit, you know, this is going to impact us. This is going to have a huge, huge impact because either it's going to change our model, it's going to change our pricing, you know, we're going to have new competitors, this is going to change. And then you see the older, you know, legal partners around the table thinking, I have two, three years before I retire, this is not going to affect me at all. And it really polarizes it. But I also see amazing opportunities. I mean, yesterday I was I was doing a keynote for one of the largest private equity firms in the world. And this is a huge organization. And when they look at a deal, they need to have all the right information. And they have built their own version of ChatGPT based on their own data. And they can now source the data, build the decks, build the information faster than they've ever done. I think this is really polarizing the entire audience. But I want to go back to something that Laurence talked about. I mean, the, the deep fake Drake. Yeah? I did, you, did you guys hear the song? I mean, I'm, I'm not a Drake fan, but you know, it sounded really, really good. And what I found really interesting is that you know, they released this on Friday evening, grew incredibly popular over the weekend, and by Monday morning, Universal Music had basically shut it down. But I'm really asking on what legal grounds did they shut it down? Because it was not copying. That's why I don't like the analogy with the Pirate Bay. This was not copying 
you know, a song. This was generating a song. New song. A new song that was basically just, you know, it sounded like Drake, but it wasn't Drake. So I, I honestly think that they had no legal grounds to actually shut it down. But it also opens up a question, you know, would you do what Grimes proposes? I mean, Stephen, I'm going to ask the question to you. Suppose that somebody comes to you and says, well, you know, we're, we're, we're going to start a series of podcasts and you say, oh, it's very nice, but, you know, I don't have time to be involved with this. Huh? They said, well, but we really like to have you. And they say, well, why don't we just do a very high resolution scan of your face and we just train your audio and you're going to get half of the revenue that we make from this. Would you do that? I mean, would you actually consider that? If I see a test and it works, I would consider it. Yeah, I, I really? would. Yeah, yeah okay. I would. Uh, uh, because my goal in life, Peter, is to share as much ideas with as many people as possible. And if I can make some money in the meantime, I'm also very interested in that. So if we can find a combination to make myself scalable, I would certainly uh, investigate it. Yeah. Would you? That's cool. Would you? I'm not sure if I would feel comfortable that there is a version of me telling stuff that maybe I don't really 100% believe in. Polarities in the room. I'd be terrified that they would you know, take that and halfway in a podcast also, you know, put in some advertising, you know, that I would be recommending some, some I don't know, SUV or, or a bicycle <laughs> or Cheerios. I don't know. Mahabis. Mahabis. Peter, did you already try in ChatGPT if you generate a text that you ask it to write it in Peter Hinson style? <laughs> I, I haven't. No, I, I always haven't. do that. If I, if I ask something, I always say, write it in Stephen van Bellingham style. <laughs> and then you get a different approach. As long as there's enough data of your content in the model, they know how to look for you and it really works. Wow, that's that's amazing. I mean, one of the things that I find interesting is I don't know. Have you guys seen the the HeyGen.com thing? So HeyGen.com is really really cool because it actually allows you to upload an avatar of yourself, and then it can actually generate video blogs for you. Hmm. So you just pick your avatar or upload your avatar. I think that's a paying thing. Mm -hmm. Then you input your script, and it then just generates the video for you. And then if you actually then combine that with things like Syllabi, which is capable of actually even generating the script, you, know, you can actually think that maybe, Stephen, in a short while, you're not going to have to do anything. You just basically sell your face for you know, half the revenues. <laughs> Some person is going to use Syllabi to generate the script and then put it into HeyGen to generate the videos. And you can just relax and, and just... you know. Yeah, you know, have a vacation yeah. all the time. So, sounds yeah, sounds yeah. wonderful. If you think about it, I mean, your children could still make money even when you die because they could keep going on and on and on forever. So it's maybe even a way for... Uh, yeah. yeah, to keep the family, the future. Keep the family business to keep the going. Family, <laughs> keep the family don't, business Don't you think going. that the problem with this could be like, I don't know, a dilution of the brand because... You will be everywhere, and then people will say, "Oh my God, it's Peter Hinson again!" And it's, is it the real one? Or is it his avatar? But oh, they've been saying that for years. <laughs> <laughs> so, no difference there. <laughs> but now, now we can launch the the Peter Hinson avatar in Latin America, and and he speaks perfectly Spanish or French. Oh, that would yeah, be I mean, cool. Absolutely, yeah. but, and yeah. they love that. But but that's one of the things. 
in uh, France and in Spain, you have this huge industry of voiceover people who are always the fixed for like apparently Tom Cruise has one person who does the voiceover. And these people are obviously terrified that they will be losing their jobs because now they can use the voice of Tom Cruise and not the voice of the other one and, and just do that automatically. Yeah, pretty soon I'll be doing keynotes in French before you know it. <laughs> <laughs> that will be the day, Stephen. That, that will be the day. That's when I will believe in AI. <laughs> I mean, I, I once did a keynote in French, and Ooh. Stephen came after me, and I thought he was going to do it in French as well. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> because the, the organizer told me, you have to do it in French because it's a, it's a, a balloon audience. And so I... <laughs> I spend about three, four days really <laughs> practicing on this. And then Stephen rolls in and just does everything in English. <laughs> and I was thinking, what is Pascal doing here? <laughs> That's why you never did it again, Pascal. We asked you once and then... Good, good point. <laughs> I kept going back. Uh, they even brought in translators after a while. So. <laughs> I look forward to you guys having more time so you can join more of our inspiration programs. I mean, be my guest yeah, It'll be yeah. fun times. Anything cool on the agenda, actually? Yes, absolutely. Uh, actually, it's uh, it's also related to the AI uh, topic. I would say less fun, <laughs> very functional, I guess. Okay. Uh, but one of the one of the favorite organizations we're talking to at the moment, of my favorite organizations we're talking to, is uh, Schmidt's Futures. It's from Eric Schmidt, uh, founder of Google, and I love it. If you go to the website, it just says bet on the exceptional. So it's really the people card where other philanthropy organizations talk about tech and about ventures, and it's often still very economy-driven. This is really a website where you think, yes, this is definitely needed. So basically, they recruit the exceptional people all over the world. They really scout for them, and then they heavily invest in them. So I think that that as such is also inspirational for companies as such and how we handle uh, talent. And it's not about the days in the office, but maybe on, on how we make those different legal groups, for example, or different ages uh, in firms work together. But that aside... Huge fan, uh, as I could say. But there as well, we're talking about what are the AI trends of the future. Eh? We're, we're looking into what could industries of the future be uh, for our program with um, with the Tate and Leco in, uh, in June in New York. And so basically the organization or somebody in Schmidt Futures will share on what they see as AI investment strategies. And he shared a few of, of the things they're working on. And I mean, they're very functional. They're very enterprise driven. One of the things basically on, on the uh, research actually is about distillation, for example, because he made the point, I mean, if you're in customer support, you really don't need that large model to generate poems or videos. You just really need to solve the problem as fast as possible. And then you need distillation and you need to make sure that that happens faster. So that was one thing that they're looking into. A second one is just make the data better, making sure that these models don't wrangle the data, but that they make sure that the data gets better, also to the point of how is this data game playing out. And a third one is really get the model to perform tasks, to follow instructions, so that you can just basically let it write the software to perform a certain task. And that then relates into what could be the companies of the future be? Who would that be? And then it gets really interesting when he starts talking about agent orchestration. So imagine those huge call centers where you have tons of people and we're already talking about, yes, they're 14% more productive, according to a recent study, when they also use ChatGPT, for example. Well, this is more like, what if it's just all AI agents 
who else do you need then in the room? Who is the company who's going to orchestrate all of that? Do you still have a room with avatars in it? Or, I mean, what kind of talent, what kind of people do you need in these types of enterprises? Second one, very obviously, indeed, uh, how do you organize the data that is disorganized? A third one, also very fascinating one, is related to guardrails and monitoring. To deploy large models in production, enterprises need monitoring solutions to, and wait for it, address hallucination and last-mile accuracy challenges. I mean, love it, no? <laughs> if, you, if you then are in that room, for me, it sounds like you sort of need the mental health clinic for the AI agents in the future. So, I mean, this is, this is really next level. Um, so, yeah, loved it. And I think besides all the, all the use cases as such, I loved how this is really going next level uh, in very functional, very enterprise-driven AI um, applications. So, um, yeah, one I, I definitely look forward to. So you're going in June, right? You and Peter uh, together with Ted and Isabel Albers. That's right. Huh? That's absolutely right. Any other sessions that you're looking forward to on that tour? Uh, yeah, which which one not, I would say. Uh, but uh, in terms of technology, a lot of talk is about AI, of course, but we're also going to deep dive into quantum computing, for example. We're going to go and, and visit a real quantum computing and see what the industry is looking at. Uh, how that will grow. We'll also look at the, the tech companies, I mean, Meta, but also somebody at Amazon, fascinating conversations uh, on how they uh, say, if you want to have a conversation that is not backed by data, well, good luck. <laughs> so it must be fascinating to be there. And I also said to that person, like, it, it struck me that you don't really talk in the we form as a company. Like usually when you're at a company, you say, yeah, we do it like that or we do it like that. They didn't say that. And her answer was, yeah, if you get fine-tuned to listen to the customer and really start from the customer, that is what you're starting from. So, I mean, fascinating how they're really wired uh, in that terms of uh, wow. terminology. Um, so really looking forward to, to that Q&A. And of course, we'll uh, also see some Belgian jewels. I mean, the Deliverex, TechWolf, uh, Calibra, a lot of them are based in New York as well. So we'll see how they indeed go to that U.S. market and uh, and see why they are there and maybe not in Europe or maybe not in uh, in Belgium. Yeah, maybe lastly, it's not only business as well. We're also going to look into generative art. Uh, we're going to have a Highline Walk by Stefan. It's actually a Dutch guy all, and he's written... Um, uh, a book super tall about uh, skyscrapers, basically. Like, why do we want to build skyscrapers and why do we always want to grow? Uh, so what better place to uh, to talk about a topic than in New York, of course. So yeah, uh, having fun times here at Nextworks. All right, sounds wonderful. So if I hear it correct, like you're seeing some major large organizations like IBM Quantum, you're going to Meta, you're going to go to Amazon, the big names, then we have cool new Jewels like uh, Smith Futuris, we have Belgian companies, and that all with the wonderful moderation of Julie and Peter in New York in June. Do we have any seats left, Julie, if someone wants to join and if is hearing this and says, I want to see this with my own eyes, this is the time I've been waiting for, I want to join you guys to New York, is that still possible? That's still possible. What do they need to do to make that happen? Yeah, just reach out, hello at nextworks.com. All right, that's easy. Hello at nextworks.com if you want to join Julie and Peter on this amazing journey. From New York back to China. Pascal, I remember that a couple of years ago we went to China together. We've done that multiple times. Well, this was an amazing experience. And during one of our visits, we went to BYD, mm -hmm. Build Your Dreams. 
uh, the car manufacturer. I still think, this is my personal belief, that the founder of BYD must be a huge Disney fan because Build Your Dreams sounds like Disney to me. And I remember when we went to their offices, their HQ, that they had a, a monorail driving around their facilities that was exactly the same monorail as you have in Disney World. So I'm convinced that they must have been huge Disney fans. And I still remember, it's probably five years ago, we were sitting there in a meeting room and someone said, uh, uh, how do you compare yourself to Tesla? And I will never forget the quote of that guy in the room. He said, oh, all the things that Tesla is showing off with, you can see it in our museum. It's old school technology. That was his quote. And then we went to see the museum with the old school technology in EVs. Everyone was making a little bit of fun of it afterwards, but today we see how BYD is coming to Europe and how they are becoming a major player. So tell us what is happening with this company. Yes, yeah, so, no, I mean, I enjoyed the, the tour at BYD very much. It's, it's an amazing company. I, I think, I mean, we even made a video uh, together, Tesla versus BYD at one point. And, and, and on YouTube, you can you can watch it, but uh, on both we'll our channels. Show notes. Yep. But uh, yeah, we're now a little bit longer than a year or almost two years now. And it's clear that BYD made a lot of progress. But I don't want to make this about BYD only. I think just in general, everything happening in electrical cars, China is, is really showing the direction. And so in April last month, the, there was the auto show. And unfortunately, I was not able to attend, but I was invited by one of the big uh, Chinese car manufacturers to go there. Unfortunately, I had my agenda. I had other uh, things to do here, other keynotes, and so I couldn't go, but uh, I was really looking forward to it. And after reading uh, what happened at that Oda show, I was like, damn, I really missed out on that moment, uh, that event, because this was after three years of China being locked down, meaning that the last Oda show was in 2021 in Shanghai. It's the biggest one in, in China, in Shanghai. And then there were no foreign visitors at that. So we have to go back to 2019 to see an Oda show in China that was really with a lot of exhibitors. Uh, but this year, everybody got back. The whole world of automotive was actually in Shanghai. I mean, this was crazy. I mean, all the foreign brands, uh, Volkswagen, BMW, Benz, uh, they all showed their most advanced cars and, and releasing actually new brands. And more and more what you see is that China is becoming, or Shanghai, and is becoming the place where new brands want to show off their new cars first, which used to be, I mean, in, in Europe, and now it's, it's all in Shanghai. And so what's clear from that other show was that the Chinese brands were really ready for these foreign brands. I mean, they dominated the show despite the fact that there were really cool uh, cars on, on display from every country in the world. But I think there's a few takeaways that I want to have from that Oda show. And then I'll get into BYD specifically, why I think it's so so cool, why what they did. The future of electrical is clearly shown at that Oda show. I mean, there's no way that it's not going to be a complete transition in just years to come. And if you just look at China... 25% of all the cars sold in China last year were electrical vehicles. And they expect by 2025, this would be 
And so take another five years, um, I mean, it's going to 100% way before the year 2030 in China. This means last year, 7 million cars, electrical vehicle cars were sold in China. That's 60% of the world's EV cars sold in that one country. So that's, of course, why every manufacturer is going there to showcase their first car there at, uh, at this show. But there were also... Another takeaway of the show was quite interesting is that it was not just about electrical. It was, again, about luxury and concept cars. Now, China is the biggest luxury market in the world for Chanel and Gucci and, and LVMH. I mean, this, this is really where luxury has to be. And they're using China, again, to show premium cars, luxury cars. And, and that was both uh, foreign as uh, Chinese cars. Polestar 4 came out. BYD had a U9 supercar. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about that one. I have a more interesting story about BYD. Another interesting announcement of that other show, which is, is could change uh, the world of electrical as well, is CATL, which is the biggest uh, battery company in the world. I mean, we always talk about BYD being the biggest, but actually CATL is, is even bigger. And those two dominate like 70% of the world market in, in batteries, those two together. And CATL announced uh, a sodium ion battery that seems to be operational which means no lithium needed. And that is a huge change because uh, lithium is, is, is limited in resource. And I mean, it's, it's, it's in places where it's not so easy to do. And so there's a lot of concerns on human rights and so on in, in, in that area. Sodium is, is a lot easier. They call it the condensed battery. And so suddenly the Chinese are, are not just at the front of building these cars, but also they seem to be setting the standard for batteries uh, for the years to come. And, and so this will make uh, Elon Musk probably a little bit nervous because, uh, in a way, he loves China because he's selling more cars than anywhere else uh, But there. But at the other side, he's becoming also a little bit dependent or quite dependent on batteries from China. But what it was the most scary for us Europeans, probably, is that at this show, all of these Chinese brands, they uh, announced that they would flood the European market. And that is their big next goal. So Geely with Zeker, Neo, BYD, Xpeng, it was all about, we're going to flood the, US, the European market because, I mean, Asia is important for them, but that's easy. They don't have to do a lot of effort for that. US, they kind of forgetting about that. That's not going to happen geopolitically too difficult. Europe is where they're going to launch it all. And the shares of all these companies just skyrocketed after these announcements. So it's clear we in uh, Germany should be concerned, at least, as well as in France and in Italy, because that's uh, going to change the markets. And specifically, when I talk about the example of BYD, which I wanted to share now, which is really interesting. BYD came out at the show with a car called the Seagull, the bird, and it really was a little hatchback, a little bit like a you could say something between a Fiat 500 and, and a Mini Cooper style, so a little car, five doors. But the price was incredible, 11,300 US dollars. So that's like 11,000 euros about. And so you have to imagine that now a fully car with where you can have like five passengers, much more advanced than most lower end or mid end priced cars in, in Europe. And not extremely ugly. Huh? You would expect that it's, it's extremely <laughs> ugly, but it's... It's no, doable. it's not. I mean, it's doable for eleven thousand dollars. This is. I was. I was going. Okay. I thought you were going to say it's doable for a Chinese carpet. <laughs> I'm no. glad you didn't. Uh, <laughs> no, it looks pretty nice, and and they've gotten it in four colors, and the most 
uh, attractive color, which sold incredibly well, was in pink. A little pink car, very cute. Uh, Chinese like to make things cute. But the reach of the battery is actually 300 kilometers range at this price. If you pay $2,000 more, you have 400 kilometers. So it's really pretty good. And this is, as you know, Stephen, this is the blade battery from BYD, which is a lithium iron phosphate, which is just much more safer than lithium ion batteries uh, from, from the past. And so it's safe, it's stable, it can go 400 kilometers. In 30 minutes, you get a 30 to 80% battery uh, charge, which, which is acceptable for this kind of car. So this has created a price war. And that is interesting because now suddenly this a car is in China not more expensive than a combustion engine car. It's actually cheaper than what you would get in a combustion engine car in China for the same thing. And so that means that the price of electrical and the price of, of combustion engines is going to go to the same level. And then, of course, people will choose electrical when there's enough charging stations around, which in China is not an issue and, and countries like Norway neither. Uh, in Belgium, we still have some work to do. But that is where I think this will change the market completely. Tesla already reduced its price of the Tesla Model 3 to 33,000 in, in China. It was much higher before. And so everybody's now putting pressure on the price, which means there's going to be consolidation in the market. There's going to be bigger players and BYD is going to be one of the winners. There's probably going to be Neo and Xpeng and, and some others from China. And this is where I think the Japanese are going to, Japanese cars are going to seriously lose out. Uh, they used to be the standard for that kind of mid-size or, or um, mid-wage cars or, or lower-wage uh, salaries um, that could afford these cars. The Japanese are clearly behind the curve. But even Europeans, the only thing we seem to have, uh, have left is, is our brand premiums, which people still love in Europe. And so for people who can afford a, a BMW or a, or a Mercedes-Benz, they will probably still go for that because they're also uh, bringing better electrical cars out. But for everything in the low end and, and families that, that kind of have to have to buy a new car in Europe in the future, I mean, unless the, the import taxes are going to be extremely high in Europe, I mean, they're going to go for Chinese cars. Yeah. And what I expect that will happen is that the um, European Union will probably force these Chinese companies to produce in Europe. And I do not see any problem for Chinese companies to set up factories in Poland and, and everywhere in, in Europe to do that. So I don't think that's going to slow them down very much, but it's going to put pressure on the price for European brands and American brands. Mm -hmm. And that is good for consumers. I find it fascinating is that in Europe, there's a tendency with the car manufacturers that they focus on, on more and more premium models because that's where they can you know, see their added value. A lot of European car makers said we cannot even you know, build cheap small cars anymore because they're abandoning that market. It seems like China is going to plug well, that hole entirely, and because, then even with electrical. Uh, well, specifically with electrical, Peter, because ultimately 50% of the cost of a car is the battery. And so if you own 80% of the world's batteries, being China, I mean, you can set the price and, and you can actually drop that price when you have scale. And if you sell 7 million cars like last year in China, electrical cars, then you have the scale to actually lower the price. And so that's really where the difference is. And so what you see is that many European brands, they now see only one option is to partner with Chinese companies. Are you going to drive a Seagull soon, Pascal? 
No, I'm not going to drive for Seagull. I was thinking about the Neo, but I need to do a few more keynotes to afford it. <laughs> when will the Seagull be in Europe, Pascal? What's the uh, Well, it's not sure it will be in Europe. Uh, I mean, uh, BYD has other models like the Dolphin, which is promoted in, in Europe. Uh, I think they're going to go a little bit more expensive first and, and see where it ends. Um, so the Seagull, I don't know, but... Uh, but BYD is already starting to sell um, lower-priced cars in, in Europe. And the Seagull, I don't know if it will ever come to Europe, but it shows how low the price could be potentially. I think there's going to do a little bit more expensive models like 15,000 or 20,000 euros, which is still yeah. okay. Yeah, and one of the things that was in the media here last week was, for instance, with NIO, that it's, it's the battery swap yeah. philosophy, which is much more customer-centric than charging for 40 minutes, you can just go to a Neo station, you swap the batteries and it takes about the same amount of time as you need to take gas today. So mm -hmm. that's also an, an interesting aspect of, of the market. I think that it's not just going to be charging cars, it's going to be battery swapping as well. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, I'm convinced that China is trying to set standards and some of them will work, some of them will fail. But it's, it's clear that things are going to change and it's not going to come from Germany anymore, the standards, as much as, as it used to be in the past. It's more and more coming from China. All right. Exciting times. Exciting times. We're going to move to another topic, our human resources, human assets topic. Laurence, I'm going to start with you. Microsoft is speaking about the human energy crisis. What is that about? Yes, so seeing that this month is the Mental Health Awareness Month, I really wanted to talk about the human energy crisis first and then also about the business models that this will trigger. So I'm sure you've seen news items about people really struggling over the past weeks, like schools are suing big tech over the teen mental health crisis. Uh, there was this report that says that 63% of HR leaders think that mental health and well-being are they really their biggest priority in the, the cost of living crisis? We even saw, Pascal, I'm sure that you saw this, a frustrated Chinese woman that was filmed smashing a robot receptionist um, in a hospital. Yeah, we saw that. I actually checked it out with a few friends uh, from China to say, and so they're, they're still trying to figure out what she uh -huh. said because it's not clear what she actually said. I mean, the audio is not very good. But now they're investigating in China if she has mental uh -huh. health problems or if it's really an aggression against a robot. So that's still, the, the judge is still out there. <laughs> yeah, so it's, but it's been a really hard couple of years, right? Um, we see the pandemic, there is global unrest, uh, wars, cost of living crisis, energy crisis, multiple layoffs. And also, and I think that this is really an important one as well. We saw this surge of, I think, tech-induced stress and we saw a broadening technology gap. I think there's also AI anxiety, which is a real thing that people are afraid that it will be replaced. There's AI also pushing productivity expectations and, and that comes with a lot of pressure. And I'll stop here before I depress you and before I depress our listeners, but I'm sure that you catch my drift. And so Kathleen Hogan, who's the VP of Human Resources at Microsoft, calls this trend the human energy crisis, which is a really interesting word because we also have another energy crisis at the same time. But the good news is that companies are really waking up to mental health challenges and to the well-being of their employees. 
And I think that how companies focus on well-being and on mental health will really become a differentiator in the war for talent. It used to be all about the perks, about the paycheck and, I don't know, the ping-pong tables and premium coffee. But I think that now mental health is going to become really important. And I think that one pitfall here is that a lot of companies are working on the symptoms like mitigating stress and fatigue, while they really should be working on the underlying causes. Just to give some examples of really well-intended battling of symptoms, companies are giving paid days off for mental health or to do volunteer work. Some are giving a paid day off each extra a quarter, where sometimes even the whole company closes. And then we have Adobe, which has a craft room. It has meditation pods. Some companies have resting rooms. But I think this is nice to have, but these are not strategic changes. Um, and what they should do is watch the workload, have realistic KPIs, leadership that empowers, just create an overall structure and a culture that offers trust and that empowers. But perhaps the most interesting thing here is, and even if it is pretty cynical when you think about it, but I think that there is this huge well-being and, and mental health market that will be opening up. And it is not surprising because, well, first of all, we have growing demands. The existing mental health market is full of friction and really poorly functioning. It has horrendous CX, uh, low availability, long waiting lists. It's very expensive, not just in the US, but in Belgium too. And we all know that healthcare was already a hot industry with players like Amazon and Walmart and Best Buy to that industry. But I think that mental health care will be one of the big niches here. And we see many examples of that already. Just think about the stellar rise in investments in psychedelics treatments and, and services for mental health in Silicon Valley, where we all know Sam Altman of OpenAI. He also has invested in Journey Colab, which wants to treat mental health issues with um, MDMA and mescaline and salucibin. But we also have burnout retreats, these really elite rehab-style clinics that offer both medical treatments on the one hand and then rest and relaxation on the other. We have retailers going into mental health like CVS and Amazon, which have these retail clinics, but they also are starting to offer mental health services. Walmart even partnered with Lyra Health to train managers to better understand the mental health needs of their employees. We had Google Ventures, which invested $28 million in first hand, which is a serious mental illness-focused startup. Um, Apple released several mental health services, like a feature for tracking moods. And even, this may be a bit weird, but the sales for dumb phones, like those of Nokia, where you can only call and send text messages are up because Generation Z uh, is starting to limit their own screen time because of reasons of mental health. And I think that this is just the beginning. I think that we will see a rise in mental health business models because, well, like I said, the current market is underserved and it is also full of friction. I just want to end with saying that the current mental health pandemic is not something that we can solve only with technology and certainly not just with commercial services. It's about culture, leadership, looking at growth in a different manner, about tackling inequality. In short, this mental health pandemic is a symptom of a failing system. And it's exactly that that we want to tackle, fixing that system. But the good news is that here too, companies can play a hugely important role by helping to fix that system if they have a bigger focus on ESG. Thanks for sharing that. It's, I think, a challenge that goes beyond 
the corporate world, huh? if you yes, if you see absolutely. and hear what's happening. So good to hear that there's so much attention going into that direction. We're going to stay in the world of future of work. Julie, you have two topics to share with us on future of work, right? Yes, and I definitely follows what Laurence just touched upon. I think one, one of the things, another symptom of last month, if you count the amount of clickbait titles about CEOs doing really weird things, it's definitely that they are having a human energy crisis as well. So I think uh, this might also be another symptom of what's already indeed bustling for a couple of years and indeed of a failing system. The most absurd example that I saw was that the Beyond Meat executive, Doug Ramsey, he bit a man's nose. I mean, how absurd is this? This is a plant-based meat company, and then they—I <laughs> mean, you get the point. But this is yeah, this is sorry. crazy. Uh, I'm not sure what you guys are doing when when tension is a bit high. But I mean, this is out of the world, you know. This is something that people <laughs> sometimes say. Oh, my nose is still on it when people get angry at you. But this guy yeah. actually went for the <laughs> He's nose. He's just like, huh? come on, let's let's do it. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, it's just one example of videos, as as we mentioned. I mean, these people are also constantly under scrutiny. I mean, the power of a, of a smartphone uh, to just being recorded all the time, uh, it, must be, it must be pretty crazy for some people to be in that job. And actually, frankly, we have to think about talent too and about the role or the job of a, of a leader in the future too, because they have to want to do that. You know, uh, we, we're definitely up for some redefinition, I would say, of the, of the leadership role, but also of how companies operate. So I think fascinating times to see that because obviously the, the system as how it works today yeah, has a few flaws. <laughs> Um, and of course, the fact that a lot of people work remote and the majority of people uh, works remote, it just adds to the uh, erosion of the illusion of control that a lot of leaders had maybe in the past because they just saw people and heard like, they could say something to people. But now that not being there might freak them out a little bit. So, I mean, lots of things going on there. And I think we can laugh at the titles and the clickbait, but I think there's a deeper discussion to be made. Like, what do we want companies to to be in the future and whatever role or title that people have, how do we want them to work together? I think the point of Peter with the older legal generation, like, haha, this is not going to happen. And then the other like, oh my God. I mean, again, that, that shows a polarity that is a symptom, but that is really an important one to tackle, I think. And the second shift that you see or the second direction of articles that you could see the last month is again about remote versus at the office work, you know, and more and more you can see voices coming up that maybe in the short term, a lot of people want to work from home because it is productive, it is efficient, but in the long term, we're sort of underestimating the effects it might have. I think relating to what Laurent said as well, uh, building culture, but also just talking to people of what is actually expected from me at work and what is good work and getting recognition. The New York Times did a brilliant article on that and called it the power of proximity. And that's true. I mean, if you're never at the office, if you're never around colleagues, it's just very hard to grow and, and to evolve. Um, a lot of the statistics, I think that was one of the statistics I didn't like at all. They point out Especially for young people, it's harder because they need to learn more in the beginning. They need more feedback. So they want to be at the office. And if the other people are not there, that's not a good thing. But then again, I think even if you're like decades in the job and it is more efficient to work from home, I think we need that learning mindset at every age and just to bring people together in fun, productive, effective ways to, uh, I hope that is the future of a company and the leadership that we'll be looking at in the future. But so those two tensions the leadership, crazy titles versus 
the power of proximity of being at an office and then thinking more about the long term there, I think it's important to take into account. It's definitely not figured out yet and everybody's searching, but uh, we'll see where it ends up. Maybe it's a good thing now. I don't know what you think, Julie, but that, you know, the toxic leadership is coming out more and more. I mean, we had cases in the US, we had cases in Belgium. You hear stories everywhere now where, you know, toxic leadership that was there, hidden, invisible for the rest of the world, but that was really causing issues internally. It's now coming in the open, which is probably a good evolution that we have more transparency about the leadership style of an organization so that you know or at least have an idea of what you're getting into if you decide to work for an organization. Yeah, and but the second thing that we also maybe should point out is like, why is that happening? And maybe that's also just an undoable job that these people have. And we might want to ask like, what, what took them there? I mean, humans, people are not bad if they're born. You know, like, what circumstances are they in? Uh, and relating to mental health uh, of Laurence, I think we should, question there as well, what do these people need to function at their best and how can we support that? Um, so I think both ways, let's not make them the villains either, because if there are tomorrow nobody who wants to lead something, uh, that's going to be not a cool thing either. Sure. So sure. Um, that is something that should be said or talked about a bit more often too, I think. Have you guys seen Succession? TV not show yet. Succession? No? <laughs> if you want to... The best series of the year, uh, if, or the last Yeah, if you want to see a show about toxic leadership <laughs> and what it does with an organization and how everyone can be scared about the leaders, even if they are incompetent, go for Succession. It's still, for me, unclear if it's a drama show or if it's a comedy. <laughs> um, you can look at it from both angles, but it's 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 really good. And it's it's exactly about the topics that you just uh, described, Julie. So Can't wait. Highly recommend <laughs> it. Uh, Peter, last topic is for you, my friend. The end of BuzzFeed, the end of Fires. Is 2023 the year of the end of, of what's happening there? Yeah, and, and I think it's it's fascinating. So BuzzFeed News decided to uh, to close down just recently. Uh, so my weekend reading for this week is um, the new book Traffic by uh, Ben Smith. Ben Smith was a journalist at uh, BuzzFeed News. And I heard a couple of interviews with him, so I really wanted to buy this book. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how we had a generation of new news companies and new news platforms that rose up in, in the last decade are now actually falling over. And BuzzFeed was one of them. I don't know if you were a fan of BuzzFeed or you know if you picked up a lot of things, but they were the specialists in the last decade of making things go viral. I mean, that, that was the they whole... They invented clickbait, almost. Eh? You they invented say. clickbait. They were at the cutting edge of trying to figure out what the new type of news mechanisms and platforms were. Mm -hmm. Often controversial and sometimes just really, really stupid. I mean, if you... Do you know what the most popular or most debated item on BuzzFeed ever was? No. It's the dress. This is this is the, the famous ah, incident. The, the color. Which color the, the dress color was? Was the that dress. it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so they had one dress and they asked people, you know, what is that color of the dress? Is it, I think it was like, is it white and gold or blue and black? And it was just polarizing the audience like crazy. It had like tens of millions of views of people who were drawn into that discussion for a really stupid thing. Is the dress one color or another color? That's just really stupid. Anyway, but they were the kings of that. And in that new book, Traffic, what Ben Smith talks about is the relationship between 
the news platforms like you know Vice and BuzzFeed, etc., and social media platforms, and how Facebook was actually trying to win from Twitter by pushing a lot of those you know new news platforms out there and driving traffic to the BuzzFeeds and the Vices of this world, which created, of course, you know an enormous amount of you know stickiness and which in the end made Facebook win. But of course, we're now in a completely different situation. We don't fall for clickbait, I think, the way we did in the past. I mean, we're bombarded with you know new opportunities. Facebook is on its way down. It's a completely different reality. And that's the reason why these companies are now actually having a really, really tough time. So BuzzFeed is interesting because uh, one of the things that is detailed in the book as well is that at a certain moment, Disney wanted to buy BuzzFeed. Disney offered $650 million for the company, and the founder said, no, we don't want to do that. And of course, now you see that BuzzFeed is uh, a quoted company. They're worth less than $80 million on the stock exchange. And of course, with their news division closing down, what's left of it? Vice is very similar. Vice was really red hot. And, you know, it, it was valued at, you know, more than $5 billion once. And now apparently it's actually filing for bankruptcy. And it's also interesting that these types of companies, both BuzzFeed and Vice, were New York companies. Because if you remember, you had the whole rise of Silicon Valley 20 years ago. And then you had 10 years ago, Silicon Alley. I, I remember that, you know, the, the term was coined where New York was going to be not just tech, but tech plus content and create the new world of news. It just shows how quickly things rise and go. Um, I'm really curious to to read the the book and and understand some of the dynamics. It also shows that it's very difficult to build something that really has true lasting potential. That is incredibly difficult. But it also shows that the world of news is still not in a final state. I mean, as you know, I'm on the board of a news company and it's fascinating to see how that plays out. I mean, everything has been turned into a digital game, but to make something that is really long long-lasting that people actually value and are willing to pay for, we have not seen the end of that discussion. Not for a look at the time. world of news, and in my perception, I don't know how you look at it, Peter, the, the strong brands are still the old brands. I mean, people still go to the Financial Times, still go to the famous you know, brands that were passionate about news. And I remember I gave a talk at the DPG here in Belgium, and Christian Van Thilo was was there as well. And he made the statement, he says, you know, in the world of news, we need to become technology companies and we need to be tech first. And he let go of that. He says, we are not a technology company. We're a company with passion for media that really knows how to use technology in a smart way. And I think what he said was spot on. And if you look at the winners in the field, it's the old companies that reinvented their passion for media and use technology in a smart way. And the new brands are having a difficulty to get the same level of credibility as those old news brands have. That's my feeling, at least. I think you're right. I think what you're describing is the reason why, for example, Vice and BuzzFeed are you know, not long-lasting phenomena. Mm-hmm. I do find it interesting to see how a next generation looks at news, because uh, let's be honest, a lot of the purchasing power is you know, people of our generation who are just still consuming the old media, and you're absolutely right, or the old brands. But if I look at you know our 19-year-old son, for example, and how Reddit has become hugely important in his life, I don't think we should dismiss new brands entirely because you know I was very skeptical about Reddit you know a couple of years ago. But when I saw how that next generation is using that and figuring out how to actually turn that into a valuable input into their life, 
I'm not so sure. So I do believe that there is a lot of potential for, for these new players. All right. Well, cool. I think this is it, my friends. This was a really interesting episode, if you ask me. I hope that our audience enjoyed it as much as we did here today. If you have questions for us, let us know. We'd be happy to tackle those. And we're looking forward to hearing you again in our next episode of Radar. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.